I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. You can find me and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Lisa Evers. Now, in this episode, we're talking about the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump, and what his presidency will mean for our urban communities as well as for civil rights. And have we got a great panel for you to talk all about this. Joining us, Dr. David Birdsell. He's the dean of the Mark School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College. He's also an expert on politics and government. David, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Great to be here, Lisa. Thank you. Also with us is Charles Coleman, Jr. He's a federal civil rights trial attorney, a multimedia commentator, and also the founder of a youth mentoring program called Edge NYC. Charles, thanks so much for being with us. Always good to see you, Lisa. We really appreciate it. Also with us is Michael Faulkner. He's the pastor of the New Horizon Church in Harlem. He's also a Republican candidate for the mayor of New York City, and he's a former New York Jets player, what they call one of the Jets legends. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. A pleasure, Lisa. Thank you. We really appreciate it. David, I want to start with you. We've heard so many times over and over again these past weeks that this is an unprecedented presidency. Is that true? It was an unprecedented campaign. He broke the rule book in just about every way it's possible to break it. He didn't form the kinds of coalitions that a traditional candidate forms. He tapped into a wellspring of anger, particularly in the middle of white America, the center of the country, tremendous support there. Very little support that Donald Trump harvested from cities in America. And you'll notice throughout the campaign, actually on both sides, both tickets, there was very little said about urban agenda issues and almost nothing coming out of the Trump campaign. So as we look forward to what a Trump presidency uh betokens, we really don't know exactly what that's going to look like. There will be a lot of infrastructure spending. That seems clear. Uh, he's talked about that repeatedly and again today. Uh, but we don't know exactly where that money is going to go, about a trillion dollars. We've got to remember that in New York State, about $45 billion of our $160 billion budget comes from the federal government. So this could be have a profound impact on the lives of New Yorkers and every income bracket, every community in the state and what's happening here in the city. Michael Faulkner, you're running for mayor of New York City on the Absolutely. Republican side. Right. Are you concerned that the cities, that New York City will get the money that it needs? Actually, I'm excited because I think for the first time we're going to get more than we are putting out. I mean, New York City, we actually spend about $80 billion in in subs in taxes paid and only get back 40. So I think under this presidency, we will see uh, not seeing everything dollar for dollar come back, but we're going to see more come back. And honestly, I'm I'm not as concerned about the urban agenda because we know as Americans that the urban agenda is the American agenda. The majority of Americans do live in an urban environment. And so if we don't fix the infrastructure, don't fix the problems, the chronic problems that we have in urban America, we're going to go down the tubes. And that was the thing that I think we struggled with over the last eight years for the president that I voted for that that just did not happen. We just did not move the ball far enough down the field to really say it was a success. But remember, the economy was also in a in a tank. It was, I mean, it was in. We were on the verge of a big depression. We no, we, we went through Obama. a big recession, the the worst one that we've had, and but we didn't come out of it as we had predicted, and so forth. And so there are a lot of factors. There's a lot of unfinished a, business, uh, is what you're saying. Right. Okay, Charles. In terms of communities of color. 
there's a tremendous amount of fear that, that I hear from people. What do you? What is your sense of the Trump presidency? I think that answering this question has to be looked at from two angles. The first one is a very practical angle, and the second one is a very sort of principle-oriented angle. And the practical angle is this. You have to consider Donald Trump's appointments, who he's appointing to his cabinet, what their records are, what their positions have been historically with respect to communities of color. And when you look at that, it's all very troubling. Either the people are woefully unqualified or their records with respect to civil rights, and I'm speaking in this instance about Jeff Sessions as attorney general in particular, are abhorrent. And they're really, really problematic. And I think that that, from a practical standpoint, is very, very troublesome because these are the people who are going to be responsible for setting, interpreting, and enforcing the policies that they set forward. And that can be very, very problematic, particularly for communities of color. Now, when you look at the principle-oriented end, I'm not sure how to interpret a Donald Trump presidency in as much as I don't know whether Donald Trump the president is going to match Donald Trump the candidate. I mean, we've already seen him walk back in many respects some of the things and promises that he tried to make in order to tap into that base of anger in white America that he that, that was already mentioned as part of the show. But what we will sort of see is that among the common voter, that level of the new normal in terms of the rhetoric, in terms of the level of hatred, in terms of the level of just sort of outright and open bigotry that we've seen, that is not going away. And the fact that that has now been injected into the American discourse as something that's very regular is a problematic thing from okay, a principle. And I, I, I want to I talk about the, more about the civil rights and also the concerns about bigoted actions and, right. and hate speech and that type of thing. But David, let me ask you, what, the point Charles made about the candidate Trump versus President Trump historically have have those been kind of has there been a split in previous presidents actually contrary to what most people think candidates tend to cleave to their campaign promises they at least try to get it done uh, in 1992 for example Bill Clinton promised that he would reform the health system and famously Hillary Clinton led that effort it, it, it blew up on her in 1994 uh, but they tried they it was the blueprint for the presidency and it's very difficult given that Donald Trump during the campaign took very different positions on signal issues and he's taking some positions now that are sharply at odds with the GOP majority in the Congress uh, for example his promise to, to provide insurance for everybody everybody gets insurance uh, well that's a remarkable claim very different from the plans that are still murky, but the plan's being forwarded in the House and the Senate. Michael, what about that? Yeah, the, the, the thing is, the, the Affordable Health Care Act, one, wasn't affordable, wasn't great legislation when it went out. And I disagree with it from day one. I was a candidate for, for, for Congress when it, when it was being rolled out. I disagreed with it. it. It drove up the costs on the middle class, those who could pay. It covered a lot of people if they enrolled. Now, with regard to rolling that back, we have crossed the threshold in America where we do believe that all Americans should have access to good quality health care. That's not going to change. Donald Trump's not going to change that. The Congress is not going to allow that to be changed. We are going to see a plan come into to play, in my opinion, that's more market driven, that's going to drive down the cost for all people across the board and give all those access to good quality health care. With regard to, to some of the things with regard to, to civil the rights. Appointments. Right? What about with the, the appointments? The, the, some of the appointments are, are I, I understand what Charles is saying, and I would tend to agree with, with regard to track record, but 
everybody has to understand nobody wants to see this split in America wants to see us divided as a nation it was the most divided campaign that we've ever seen in the history of our nation well but since whose the fault War. is that right. well I, I can't what I certainly attitudes, what it, attitudes are behind that well does the, that the mean attitudes. people who are saying our lives matter too need to now take a back seat and keep their mouth shut absolutely not but it, but it does mean that people that see the president that's elected I mean our for, for instance our mayor that has protested the the legitimate election of a president that's lunacy to me and that's irresponsible rhetoric we have a president that was elected you know people want to get into the whole notion of who helped and was it hacked and was that the russians hacked the the emails and so forth and so on you're you know saying what? get you're saying get over it we have to take a short break okay this is street soldiers i'm your host lisa evers we'll be back right after this yo what up this your homie ace hood and this is street soldiers with lisa evers real issues real poly tricks and real people only on hot 97 welcome back to street soldiers i'm your host Lisa Evers. You know where to find me, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Lisa Evers. And in this episode, we're talking about what the Donald Trump presidency means for our urban communities and also for civil rights. Joining us for this discussion, Dr. David Birdsell. He's the dean of the Marx School of Public Affairs and International Affairs at Baruch College. He's also an expert on politics and government. David, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Also with us is Charles Coleman, Jr. He's a civil rights trial attorney, multimedia commentator, and founder of Edge NYC, which is a youth mentoring program. Charles, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Lisa. We appreciate it. Also with us is Michael Faulkner. He's the pastor of the New Horizon Church in Harlem, and he's a Republican candidate for mayor. He's also a former New York Jets player, what they call one of the New York Jets legends. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. A pleasure, Lisa. We really appreciate it. Charles, the narrative, you, you're talking about a narrative with the Trump presidency that greatly concerns you. Why? Right, and I think that part of what we've seen is this conversation in the public sphere about uh, unification of both parties and getting rid of bipartisanship. But again, there's a very big gap between Trump the candidate and Trump the president. This is a person who made campaign promises. David, you'll probably remember he was going to drain the swamp and that he was going to get rid of all the insiders. And what we've seen since he's been president is that he's appointed Washington insider after Wall Street insider after billionaire after, again, many of these people being woefully unqualified millionaires who are coming into Washington. In terms and of Government service, and, you're in terms of, right, right, right. right. And, and 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 I can't let you know one of the things that happens when we talk about t- about narrative. I can't let Mike's uh, uh, comment go early about the urban agenda being the American agenda. I take great issue with that, and I take great issue with it because if that were in fact the case, we wouldn't have dirty water in Flint, Michigan. We wouldn't be dealing with some of the problems but that the we've seen. the dirty water that happened in Flint, Michigan, happened under the presidency, a black president, and, and, and a Democratic administration that should have fixed the problem. Now, that, sound, so that it, sounds great, but let's be clear. That sounds great. What about that? Michigan has a Republican mayor. Uh, I'm sorry, Michigan has a Republican governor. Let's be very clear. Michigan listen, has a Republican governor. is an entitlement for and, all and who Americans. Was chiefly, and, and, and you're trying to, the, you're, 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 you're conflating issues, Mike. You're conflating issues. It's Michael, and I'm not conflating the issues you brought it up so I'm just pointing out that it happened on whose watch and as, as on, we, a, on the watch of a, a Republican is the president responsible if, for if, that is the federal government responsible for that there are shared responsibilities at the state and federal level in this case there have actually already been criminal charges against people in the Snyder administration and state government is largely Excellent. held responsible for inaction in the Excellent. case of Flynn and if, and if I, I I haven't had a, a meeting yet with the president but I, I do plan to do that and talk about the urban agenda and one of the things 
things that I'm going to bring up that they need to do immediately is fix the water system in Flint, Michigan. You talk well, about other the, communities the, too, the, where there's, there's been water there's issues. Other communities, listen, and they're Louisiana. all they all happen. Most of them happen to either be urban or rural poor, and many of them are in communities of just color. Like, just like, just like the President Obama inherited a recession. This president, President Trump, has inherited an urban blight that has taken place before he became president, before he even began the campaign. And so we need to understand, in order to fix this problem, we've all got to work together. And well, let's I'm, talk about yeah. who's going to be working together. David, in terms of the Trump administration, is this similar? I mean, we've seen in past administrations, Wall Street people, they have, you know, they're involved in things people that have a lot of money, millionaires involved in it. Is this an unprecedented level of that type of involvement of the top 0.001%? Well, it's certainly been the case in the past that we've had people out of Goldman Sachs in the uh, Obama administration, in the Clinton administration, but not so many, not such a concentration of wealthy people, not such a relatively uh, a, a monoculture of wealth and privilege and of strong, strong commitment to unfettered markets. Uh, that is unusual, and that is unprecedented in the Trump administration. Charles, Barack Obama, when he was uh, inaugurated, said that he was going to be the president for all Americans, regardless of the color of their skin. Do you feel that's the case with President Trump? I think that that's what the image, that's the image that President Trump intends to convey. I think that that is something that uh, he would like to certainly have as a claim to say. I don't necessarily know that we can say that thus far, especially when you talk about, again, his appointments. You know, I'm not, I'm less concerned with the rhetoric, although it has been problematic, and more concerned with the action. And at this point, the action that I've seen, I don't know that he can say that, um, because in terms of the appointments that he's made, they're very troublesome. Um, even with respect to Bannon being one of his chief advisors, that's also problematic, especially when you're talking about communities of color and historically how Breitbart and Bannon have, have behaved in terms of character, uh, uh, constructing a narrative around black and brown people in America. So I think that in order for me to really feel comfortable with that claim that he's the president of all people, we've got to really stop this conversation about banning Muslims from America. We've got to stop this conversation about this wall with respect to illegal immigrants. You mean and the us deal versus with, them. The and, us versus right. And deal, with things in, in, in a very, and deal with things in a very unified, uh, uh, humanistic point of uh, uh, perspective. What, but, what about that, Michael? Unified, humanistic, we We've got to we've got to have strong borders, okay? And listen, and, and and looking at the number of Latinos that voted for Donald Trump, it was surprising. It was astonishing that so many supported him. And why did they support him? Because we all understand that we have to have reform in our immigration policies, and we have to have a strong stronger borders first of all. But 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 you know, as it relates to this presidency, I think we need to you know me. I I certainly am am excited about the fact that he is a New Yorker. And he understands. He grew up in New York. But how he do you feel about as a man of faith? You're a man of faith. Absolutely. And you're also in the, in the political sphere. But how do you feel as a man of faith that our president has offended so many people, the Muslim soldiers family, going back to that, getting into battles with Meryl Streep, insulting Congressman John Lewis, one of the civil rights. Listen, if he never did anything, I, I another I, I, thing I, I, the day I, in his life, he should be I, considered I, I, a hero. I understand. Listen, and but I doesn't cannot. That, doesn't I cannot, that tone bother you? The tone bothers me. It does. And I've, I've, I've shared I mean, is that, that a with Christian, him. Is that wait, a Christian? Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. I'm not going to elevate Mr. Trump to a level of, of Christian, quote unquote, 
uh, responsibility. I'm not, I'm not doing that. In the, in the, How about what's decent, decent and civil decent in America? In the, decent and civil in America. It, it, certainly, uh, it, it certainly went beyond those boundaries, but so did the rhetoric and some of the things that were done with regard to Mrs. Clinton and, and with regard to some of the things that she so did. Basically so basically, if somebody goes low, no, we go low, no, too? No, 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 no. We don't do what, like what, Michelle what, what said. If they go low, we go high? If they go low, we go Michelle, high. Michelle, Michelle Obama Michelle said but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. But I'm just asking, we've, doesn't we've that— seen enough, We've seen enough garbage on both sides. If we could just acknowledge that and not try to hold one person to a higher standard and another person to— Well, them. actually, because— the people they, they that I have seen that have been the most intolerant have been the people at the left who are supposed to be the advocates of tolerance. David, there was a, what about the the Twitter, you know, the, the Twitter tirades, the the uh, president's <laughs> habit of saying things just off the cuff on Twitter, which a lot of people do. But when you're the president of the United States, does that concern you? Oh, well, it concerns me greatly, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, this is the first president, he's not the first president to tweet, that honor went to Barack Obama, uh, but he is the first president to tweet about substantive policy issues, wading into delicate situations like international affairs, warning China off of its uh, positions in the South China Sea via Twitter, via tweet. Uh, this is potentially the kind of thing that could trigger conflict, put American assets, human assets, physical assets, military assets, directly at risk. Uh, and we don't know how it's going to play out because not only is he the first president to tweet, he is the first leader of any nation to try to conduct policy on social media. That's a real concern. And, and Lisa, you make a very good point when you start talking about uh, President Trump as a moral leader. Because at the end of the day, what we have become accustomed to, good, bad, right, wrong, or indifferent, is that the President of the United States does in fact, for some for many of us, set a moral compass, right? And so and because of that, the president does have to be, in many respects, beyond reproach with respect to his moral demonstration of character, of behavior, and of comportment. And it's not fair to compare Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton anymore because Hillary Clinton's not running for president anymore. That election is over. That ship has sailed. If, we're, if we are to accept Donald Trump's presidency as legitimate, which I have issues with, um, then you have to hold him to a higher standard because he is now the person who has been elected as but commander. Will he hold, him, but, but, will but, he hold but, himself and, to and, a and higher standard? And there are some real issues don't there. We have to, don't we have to, in order to judge the presidency, I mean, give he was just sworn in. Yeah, yeah. Let's I mean, give him it, a it, chance. Just give him a chance. We gave him and, a chance and, for 18 but, months. All well, right. No, no, no. We gave him the, the election. We're going to give him you know, a chance. I'm going to give everyone a chance to comment on this when we come back. We need to take a short break. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be back right after this. Hey, yo, this is Pat Post with Lisa Evers. Put your thinking caps on. Street Soldiers. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. You know where to find me, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about what the Trump presidency will mean for civil rights and for our urban communities with an amazing panel. Dr. David Birdsell, he's the Dean of the Marx School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College, an expert on politics and government. David, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure, Lisa. We really appreciate it. Also with us, Charles Coleman Jr. He's a federal civil rights trial attorney, multimedia commentator, and also the founder of Edge NYC, which is a youth mentoring program. Charles, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Lisa. We appreciate it. Also with us is Michael Faulkner. Mm -hmm. 
He's a pastor of the New Horizon Church in Harlem, a Republican candidate for mayor of New York City, and a former New York Jets player. He's one of the New York Jets legends. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Lisa. All right, Michael, I told you we'd come back and we would start with you in terms of the legitimacy issue and what we can expect from President Trump. You mean legitimacy in terms of Him the fact president. that he was people he was are president. still talking about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, listen. After somebody being sworn in. somebody hacked emails, okay? Those emails got out. Nobody is talking about the fact that the subject of those emails and the content of those emails is unchallenged and it it exposed weaknesses, it exposed inequities in the Democratic Party system and in Mrs. Clinton. And I call her Mrs. Clinton out of respect. So so that we have to put beyond us. The fact that he is president and did that influence the American people and throw the election? No, it did not. He is the duly elected president. And of he's sworn in United. as the president. He's but David, is this a is is this legitimacy issue a real issue or is this just political, you know, talk on on talk shows? Let me bracket the answer. I think I I, I would agree with Michael that it's over. He's president of the United States. We're not going to reverse that judgment. But the fact that we have unanimous consent in the, in the intelligence community in the United States, that the hacking was done by a foreign government, that it was released through third parties to influence the election, whether it did so or not, could it have affected the 68,000 votes in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan that would have tilted this election to Hillary Clinton? Yeah, it may have. We'll never know the answer to that. But we must know how our election system was compromised, how our parties were compromised by perhaps foreign espionage, well, by right now the intelligence community's consensus, by foreign espionage. So you're saying but that's, that's the real, that's, that's, but that's the real issue. We, that is a real issue. Not looking backwards. Not right. looking backwards. Okay. But just looking saying there, there's a big security hole. Somebody left the door open basically right. somewhere. We're talking about the integrity of our election systems. You know, remember that the whole Watergate scandal was about people breaking into the DNC. Right. This is Watergate times 50. It's right. much more serious and much more compromising potentially for the ability to have conversations. And in a different episode of the show, we can talk about whether what was revealed was really scandalous or merely sh showing people how the sausage is made and they don't like the way that and the they, sausage is made. And they don't, like, don't like what they're saying. But, but Charles, in terms of, because you work in the federal court system, you work with the federal government, in terms of the integrity of that system and the confidentiality and all of the things that, I mean, just, I can't even imagine how much information is confidential that right. could be out there. Does this type of a hacking situation, does it jeopardize the integrity of, of the government's ability to function? I think David makes a great point. And, and, and going back to something he said earlier in the show when he talked about the fact that now you have a president who doesn't seem to really get the importance of national security. And for as much talk as he makes in terms of foreign affairs and foreign issues, the way that he sort of flippantly deals with foreign policy with respect to America and this tough talk, it's very, very dangerous. And, and it would not surprise me if in a drunken rage or, or a midnight rage of him tweeting, he ends up himself putting out national secrets. That's not beyond the realm of possibility, given what we've already seen that's, that's. from President Trump. And I mean, this is a person who has de publicly declared that he does not need to be briefed every day with respect but to But don't you think that, Michael, issues. don't you think that's going to change, though? That that's, that's certainly going to change. Make, it's, how it's, can it's, he, he's a businessman. How can you make decisions without information right. or and, even, and, like, and market things, research? Things change the, every minute, and, and, and he will be brought up to speed on those things that change every minute. But one of the things that I think we have to do as leaders, and I consider everyone on this panel a leader, we have got to begin to speak responsibly. We have, it, 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 Every bit of doubt 
and fear that we foster in the minds of the American people. And for me, in the city of New York, uh, uh, against this presidency pushes us further and further behind. I think it was irresponsible for the mayor of this city to protest the legitimacy of this president on the eve of his being sworn in. It was irresponsible. We have got to take responsibility for moving it forward. Hold him accountable? Absolutely. But let's hold him accountable for where he is going and the things that he is going to do, well, not what he's done already. And because you know what they say, you uh, campaign in poetry and govern in prose. Let's read the prose. Let's read the writing. Let's look at the. At well, what's some people going to be say the handwriting is already on the wall. But David, but, the, in terms of the in terms of the intelligence issue, because this is very important to us in the world as destabilized as it is right now, with terrorism being a top concern here in New York City in terms of safety and in many other places around the country. Will do you think that President Trump's attitude towards the intelligence community will change once he realizes that he gets that big book every morning that's full of all of that information and threat analyses and that type of thing, and that he needs these people, these professionals? Well, right now, we, we, we have a record that's somewhat troubling with respect to that prediction. He's been offered that briefing book every morning, as the uh, was offered that book, briefing book as the president-elect. Whether he will choose to look at it now that he's president is an open question. He said that he doesn't need it. He said that he's naturally smart and has a sense of how these things work. But when we look at what's happening with regard not only to terrorism, but to election hacks, it's not just a United States problem. Vladimir Putin is busily doing the same thing in France the same thing in Italy, the same thing in Germany. There are multiple commentators who have talked about this. And what it does is to call into question a different kind of legitimacy, and that's the legitimacy of our government institutions, the ability of any institution to represent the interests of, our, of, of the people. And when the public confidence goes down on that score, and by the way, in the United States, it's the lowest it's been in 65 years, as measured by the Gallup organization. Then we have a crisis of governance of a different sort. It's not but, about one man. David, it's about the whole enterprise. And the so whole David, enterprise. Would you, would, oh, would, would you, no, I was just going to ask David. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that 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 confidence and and shoring up those that that security is a measure that we all have to buy into? We all have to have better cybersecurity and the ability to police and to shore up all of our emails and all of our internet connections to making them as secure as possible. Michael, I don't think anyone would Absolutely. answer no to that because I mean well, the, every, we all want we all want more security but let me let me just push this the, the conversation forward a little bit Charles in terms of when thing when the world is at war when there's terror attacks that type of thing the civil rights issues that have come to the forefront of the national newscape over the last couple of years these the cases of unarmed black men being shot and killed by police officers the racial profiling sure. issues are you concerned as a fighter for civil rights that these will now literally be put to the back burner because of these other just just basic functioning government functioning controversies i want to i want to sort of put things in perspective we just saw as you talked about earlier in the show president trump attack personally the legacy of John Lewis. And that's very disconcerting because when you attack someone like John Lewis, who is, for all intents and purposes, the embodiment of our nation's civil rights legacy, you attack an institution, you attack America, you attack Americans. And when you do that, it's much bigger than the person because now what you're doing is you're delegitimizing 
the legacy of civil rights in this country and what it has meant and those gains. So what happens to the average American who's not necessarily paying so much attention, they write that off. And they begin to write that off. They begin to, to accept that narrative, that delegitimized narrative of our civil rights gains and our civil rights struggles. And so when these other issues come into play, as you've already said, there is a real concern that those things begin to get pushed to the side. And the message especially the to the youth. Because and it begins to get lost. And that's a real because, scary because thing. Because the John Lewis story, and he's been on Street Soldiers, was he said he'd been arrested over 40 times, he'd been beaten by the police repeatedly, and yet he became part of the system in order to have an impact on sure, it. Right. Are you worried, Michael Faulkner, that that message is going to be, as Charles said, delegitimized? John Lewis is an honored hero for my life and for all of Americans, period. Unequivocal. President Trump should not have challenged him personally shouldn't have happened. I disagreed with it. I disavowed it. Now, will he do it in the future? Does that mean that he, he disavows himself to all civil rights? No. He met with Martin King III. They talked, and he understands there is going to be dialogue with, Dr., with, with President Trump and, and black leaders, black civil rights leaders. The civil rights movement has to begin to progress. We have got to begin to move to a place where black lives do matter, black, all lives matter, but black lives, especially in, in the, and we've got to understand that all of these things that happened thus far, Charles, happened under pr President Obama. And it's not his responsibility. It's not a president's responsibility to remove all of the injustices, but it's to set the tone. And I believe, I understand the concern, but I do not believe that we should all of a sudden go into this fear mode and believe that all of a sudden but it was also, there's going but to be a reversal of everything that's happened president thus far. Obama's attorney general that put federal monitors on many of the police departments around the United States where there had been issues to force them to make reforms. Correct. And and and, and again, let's be clear about what the what and, and this is seventh grade civics here. Let's be very clear about what the responsibilities of each branch of government are. President Obama, there's no president in the history of the United States that's been responsible for local police for local policing. Nor has there been a president in recent history that has taken the amount of interest in local policing that President Obama has, which he has been forced to because of the fact that police culture is much bigger than President Obama. It didn't start with President Obama. It hasn't ended with President Obama. That is a question of law enforcement and its history in America, which is an entirely that's bigger a whole, conversation. And a, and a totally different show. Let, let me bring it back to bring it back to politics, though. And and. Dave David, in terms of the in terms of President Trump, he, he is incredibly media savvy. Does that change the game? And are we even looking at him in the right way? It absolutely changes the game. Uh, and I'll go back to the whole notion of government by Twitter. Uh, he set, you know, he lobs these bombs out there, and people respond. The press covers it. The Congress races. Maybe uh, you know, corporate CEOs live in terror at the notion that they might become the subject of the next. Please bring your operations back. Except there's no please involved. Uh, and and it changes the landscape in ways that are, are are really quite unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen. It also gives Trump the ability to paper over some contradictions with countervailing evidence. So, for example, going back to the drain the swamp point uh, that Charles raised earlier, uh, yet appointing people who are insiders, the insiders insiders into the mm. positions that he uh, on his cabinet and elsewhere. Um, but he also challenged the GOP majority on the effort to uh, defenestrate the Congressional Ethics Office, um, 
which was a huge win for Trump. It appears to be a major victory and a major initiative in terms of uh, transparency and justice. Uh, but of course, it doesn't affect him. It affects legislators, yeah, and that's it, a brilliant move. And Lisa, I've got I've got to issue a challenge to you okay. as a, as a media as a member of the media. All right, can you hold on to that because sure. we need to take a short break. As a member of the media, I need to take a short break. <laughs> this is Street Soldiers. We're talking about what the Trump presidency means for urban America, our urban communities, and also civil rights. I'm Lisa Evers, your host. We'll be back right after this. Yo, what up? It's the game, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people only on Hot 9-7. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. You know where to find me, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Lisa Evers. And in this episode, we're focusing on what the Trump presidency means for urban communities and also for our civil rights. Joining us for this discussion, Dr. David Birdsell. He's the dean of the Mark School of Public and International Affairs, an expert on politics and government. David, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Charles Coleman, Jr. He's a federal civil rights trial attorney, a multimedia commentator, and founder of Edge NYC, which is a youth mentoring organization. Charles, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here, Lisa. We appreciate it. Also with us is Michael Faulkner. He's pastor of the New Horizon Church in Harlem, a Republican candidate for mayor of New York City, and also a former New York Jets player, what they call a legend, one of the Jets legends. And uh, let's talk about the issue of jobs, because this was one of the main campaign issues for President Trump. It was one of the things that many parts of the country, not just urban, but also rural and suburban, are concerned about. And people are saying, well, he's already we, put his money where his mouth is. Uh, well, you, you know, here's the thing. The conversation about jobs and putting some action already before he was even president is huge. We have got to begin to to not just talk about but to be about jobs. I've launched a campaign to uh, in my campaign to bring uh, 500,000 jobs to New York in the next 10 years. Jobs is the greatest civil rights, the greatest equalizer. It is the greatest of all of the the needs that we have is for the dignity that comes with work the value of work is uncompromised we, we we have got to begin to champion that and to know that those things happen and i believe that this businessman being the president will help us and will go a long way to doing that what about that guys well i it, I think it remains to be seen, and certainly uh, in the spirit of generosity, I want to see what President Trump will do. But these one-offs with Carrier, with automakers, bring your jobs back, these are blips, they're smoke screens. Uh, those are tiny numbers of jobs. I mean, this, you know, we, we eliminate, create and eliminate tens of thousands of jobs every day, every day in the United States. And we've got to remember that he's got the luxury of building on a record of an administration just passed, the Obama administration, that had the largest record of sustained job growth of any presidency in American history since the Second World War. Um, is so that true? That is true. That, that, is, that is absolutely true. I, Wait, say I, that again, I, David, I'll because yeah, yeah, this is yeah. hashtag facts. Yeah. Go ahead. The, the hashtag facts. Since, to, since we came out of the recession in 2009, <laughs> we have had every single month net job growth in the United States. We have never had that long a record of uninterrupted job growth in the nation's history post-war. Job post growth, war. David, but what are the number, the total numbers of jobs? We are still the, down 20 million jobs. No, in, no, we're, in, no in, that's in, absolutely in, wrong. We're, in, we're actually up above the uh, the pre-recession level of levels of, uh, of, of job growth right now. We have lower labor force participation, but remember, there are more Americans. Uh, we're up just shy of 330 million Americans. We started this process at three. 
314. Yeah. So even though we've had a growing workforce, we still have less labor participation, but a net increase in the number but of jobs. But when you say less labor pr okay. participation, so, is that, so, beca is that so, because, just so I understand what we're talking about, does that mean less people actually looking for work and more people... Well, it's, it's complicated. There are actually out? seven measures of, of, of unemployment, and right. I'm, I'm not going to go through all of them. But the big factor here, Lisa, is age. Uh, baby boomers like me are getting to the point that we don't want to work as much. I'm not sure we ever did. But, uh, but we're, we're, we're getting to the point where we're retiring, uh, and we're the biggest population cohort that's moving through the snake right now. So you're going to see... So that's a factor. That, right. is, that is an absolutely... But, but let me, let me, talk, about, let me talk about the youth, because that, okay. that's yeah, obviously that's a big, big concern, concern of the show. Yeah. Charles, you, you work with young people through your mentoring organization. When you, when you see these young boys, do they, are they being prepared for the types of jobs that we don't yet have in America? That we're losing that they they need with technology and these types of things i would argue that they're not and i think that that dovetails into another aspect of of president trump's administration which seems really really concerning and that is education because what we are seeing throughout america particularly with our education system is that our young people are not being adequately prepared for the jobs that are going to allow them to be successful and to thrive and so that's why looking at who he's appointing and their ideologies and their track records is critical because what we can we can the writing is on the wall and we can sort of forecast what the future is going to hold. We are no longer and we haven't been for some time Factories. an industrial right. uh, uh, a culture. Right. That's not how we work. That's not how the global economy is set up anymore. And that's not where we're going to find our win. We need to be focusing our education system and revamping our education system to prepare our young people for the types of jobs that are going to be available. And, and on that point, Michael, as, as mayor of New York City, right. Michael Bloomberg in the past had brought technology jobs to New York and said, you know what, our youth are not being, our students are not being prepared. We can't, they can't find the workers to keep those comp types of businesses right. in New York City. And yet this is where the jobs are and the jobs of the future. What would you do as mayor of New York to change that? I've already started doing it. I'm working with a private company, IRG, and what we do is we actually have jobs. We have about 2,000 jobs a day, 2,000 people working every single day, and we're growing that to 6,000 people. We prepare them for the workforce, and then we put them to work. And, and we need to partner with other companies like that to expand our ability to do two things. One, provide work, and two, and most importantly, as Charles was talking about, prepare our young people for work. My master's degree was in career education, and, and so I understand even before I went to seminary, I understood the value, not just the value of work, but the need for preparation. And, and I've seen the numbers in the African-American community, particularly the urban African-American community. We are underprepared for the world of work. We have got to begin to prepare our young people, not just for college, but for career-oriented education, whether that means a trade or learning experiences, which give them an opportunity to, to thrive and to flourish in the workforce. If we prepare a better workforce, we can bring bring those jobs back from overseas and we can David, have that, David, that, in terms that, of the education picture, what are, we, what are we missing here in the United States? Because you're in education as well. There are a number of countries, and Western Europe does an excellent job of this, that have apprenticeship programs that give people the opportunity to move in and out of different levels of as-needed educational training directed toward career. Uh, our system is pretty creaky. Uh, community colleges are a huge piece of the equation. It looks, I think, one of the encouraging things about the Trump administration is that it appears that community colleges are likely to be uh, at least as well and perhaps better supported than they are now. That, of course, began under uh, uh, Joe, Joe Biden's wife, Jill, 
uh, who led a community college initiative. But it might expand in a, tr- in a Trump administration. I look forward to seeing that. Lisa, I, I want to switch gears really quickly because I do have a challenge for you as a member of the media. And, and you talked about this earlier uh, just briefly. Donald Trump is a very difficult cover. He's an extremely difficult cover for any person in the media because we have entered into a space where the relevance of facts is very questionable, right? And so it's very difficult for you to cover someone when you present them with facts that are straight up and either they deny, they conflate, or they confuse. And so there is a real challenge for you and other journalists out there with respect to the ethics around journalism, the ethics around reporting, and the ethics around really presenting fair equitable narratives to the American public to make sure that Donald Trump is held accountable. This is a person who will tweet one thing on Monday and say the opposite on Tuesday and then on Thursday say, well, that's not exactly what I meant and while his entire team backs him up. And I realize that he's a difficult cover, but we can't have four years of as... as but, I, but, I think also, but I think also to, to defend in, in defense of my profession, but real reporters as opposed to political commentators and people who are on TV and all they do is you know they're in the studio right. all the time they're whether it's new york or washington and they're not out in the field i'm a field reporter so basically if anyone a candidate for mayor or anyone else says this is what i'm doing i've got these jobs i'm going to go to that neighborhood and see if those jobs are there and, uh, as and you, you should. can tell pretty as soon should. because people will talk and people talk to as me and should. i'll ask them questions and that type of thing so i think when you have a case like like a putin and hacks and that type of thing that's very invisible for a lot of people they don't understand it right. They don't understand how you would verify it. The average person just understands like, oh, yeah, it's like they stole my credit card only on a big scale. And it's, but I think these other things like when, when we're talking about America, when we're talking about our urban communities, it's going to be easy to see the jobs. OK, are those jobs going to a, a rural community in Iowa or are they coming to southeast Queens? Right. Are those jobs going to, you know, that type of thing? And same thing with education, too. And, and as, as it relates to media. I think it's important for us to distinguish, as 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 you said, Lisa. It's it's important for us to distinguish the, the role of commentator and entertainer. And I'm not versus, putting them versus, down. Versus, That's no, no, a whole no, no, different no. skill but, set. But, but, but I want us well, to like understand, to as Americans, yeah. we draw more information from the commentators as opposed to news. We don't. Exactly. There's very little David, hard David, news pres- that's pres- being done anymore. President, exactly. President Obama, in his last uh, interview with 60 Minutes, he said, "You can't." More and more people are getting their news from from Twitter, from right. social media, as opposed to traditional newscasts like we do at Fox 5 and regular news reports like I do for Fox 5. So is that a concern in terms of the political s- sphere of how much basically any politician can get away with? Well, irrespective of your politics, it is a concern because what we're seeing is a fragmentation of the media environment. It used to be the case when I was growing up and, you know, pterodactyls flew in the sky, but there were three <laughs> oh, television stations. There were three television stations and they were more or less similar in what they covered and how they covered it. Right. Now we have very divergent uh, topics. Right. So some of this is good, right. right? People can get the information that they want, that they feel they need, but some of it is bad because we don't have a common language language anymore to talk about what we see in politics. And right, exactly. There was a standard also in terms of journalism, what journalism did. I was a journalism major, and I understood there were certain rules, certain ethics that and principles that had to be followed. Did Charles, we I, don't see that anymore. I, well, I think, I well, think, no, I you think see it, made, but there's a lot more of people right. repeating things and people and, 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 things. and people's but opinions I think it also makes it, I think it also makes news. it a challenge when I think it also makes it a challenge when you have a president 
who is governing, as David has already pointed out, via social media. Because then the question is, every tweet for the next four years can't be breaking news. But then the media does have to decipher for itself and for the public. But then again, when you have which, 24 hour news channels, right, right. What's, what's, they need to fill shows. What's news? What isn't? What's newsworthy? And, and, and I, mean, I think that that is really. But, but, but at a certain Donald point, Trump, as they, as they say, point, say it, don't hate the point, player, hate the game. Right. I mean, he didn't invent didn't Twitter. Did you steal that from me? No. <laughs> but, isn't there, but isn't there a certain point where things are going to come? down and it's going to get down to like you know you you got to show you got to we, we see, have see to you walk as walk. Americans but see this is where they this is where we have to join together this is where Charles and I hook up on this issue we have to hold this government accountable we have to hold them accountable we have to say what are the results what's the black unemployment what's the the inner city unemployment what are we doing on education how are we moving this ball forward those are real numbers that we have got to begin and you brought to, up you brought up real numbers and while we have david here i want to ask him real quick in terms of the real numbers that trump has and president trump has in terms of getting legislation through congress what are we looking at? Because we have a Republican Senate, right? So what are we? What are we? T- Republican what, House too. So so will they automatically whatever he does? Will they automatically approve or or what, what? How does that work? Well, it's most of this legislation is going to originate in the House. They find a Senate co-sponsor. Uh, they've already shown that there's a willingness to go through a budget reconciliation process to make bills such as the repeal of the Affordable Care Act uh, non-filibusterable. You can't uh, take it through that mechanism, and that deprives the minority Democrats of the last tool that they have in the Senate. Um, So the question is, how closely aligned will President Trump be with his Congress? Uh, And we've seen, again, with the Affordable Care Act replacement, uh, a major challenge. He now has said that he wants to cover 100 percent of Americans. Uh, That is not what's in the current, and and again, they're nebulous proposals at this point. They're not detailed. But Tom Price's proposal would create enormously high deductibles, try to get people skin in the game so that they won't spend as much money on health care and not guarantee coverage for everybody. And, and so will the Congress pass something that Trump will be able to sign? That's the real question. Uh, and how effective will he be at getting them to amend legislative packages to the point that he can? And this is, I think, the value of his cabinet. They're entrepreneurs. They're business people. They'll be able to come up with some solutions. Now, getting it through a, a political legislative body like the Congress, I don't care what the party affiliation is. We've seen in the past that s- having a majority in both the House and the Senate does not mean that you get to run the table. It means that you have to have responsible legislation, but they're going to have some good ideas that are going to come out of and through the White House. Charles, but final word, the lack of experience concerns you. The lack of experience certainly concerns me because running the country, as we've seen uh, on a smaller level, is not about being a business. Um, Michael Bloomberg is arguably one of the best businessmen that we've seen uh, in the modern era of business. And I would argue, as would, would many, that when it came to being a mayor of New York, particularly for communities of color, he was not a good mayor, at least not for us. And so, you know, the idea that because someone's experience in business uh, has been has brought them a, a high level of success is going to translate for them in governance. I don't necessarily know always applies And the examples that we have have not been very positive in terms of predicting the future. OK, but with regarding regarding Michael Bloomberg, there were many accomplishments, too, in terms of modernizing the city government bringing the business back and the economy back after 9-11. We'll save that for another show that we're out of time. I want to thank all of our guests for being with us for this episode of Street Soldiers. Dr. David Birdsell, Charles Coleman Jr., and Michael Faulkner, thank you all very much for being with us. And remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. I'm Lisa Evers. Let's push for peace.